Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it is time for another classic episode of Tech Stuff, the episode you are about to hear originally published way back on October 15th. 2012. It is called How DNA Computers Work. And Chris and I dive into the weird, wild world of computers based on DNA. Hope you guys enjoy. We were going to share some twisted logic with you today. Yes, we wanted to talk about dioxyribonucleic acid computers. Dana. Dana. Yes. It's da do na 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 da do na na. Uh, <laughs> DNA computers. And what is a DNA computer or what would it be? Because we're really in the very early stages of using DNA for uh, the reasons of a, a you know, purposes of a computer. Uh, but what would a, a DNA computer be? Why would we even use DNA? And what the heck is this DNA stuff anyway? Well, you know, I've got a USB port on the back of my head, so it, it <laughs> yeah, doesn't so, seem like that far of a stretch. Yeah, he also woke up one day and he was in a giant battery and he had to get out. <laughs> turns out Chris is the one. And well, no, I'm definitely not we the got one. About this, you know, we got Agent Smith showing up every other day at the office. And we're like, he's not here today. He's teleworking. And, oh, it's just irritating. But there's, anyway. There's a glitch in the matrix. DNA. So... DNA is 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 important stuff. I mean, this is a molecule that contains information that, you know, collectively this information makes makes organisms what they are. Yes. And and, uh, and so biologically DNA is used to store information and that is really the key there. You know, saying Wait a minute, if DNA stores information for organisms, could we use DNA to store information for other purposes? But uh, to, to really explain this, uh, DNA, it's, this, it's, it, it's that double helix molecule. You've probably seen uh, you know, illustrations of it. You may have built a model of it. If you are in school, you may be studying this so much that the terms I'm going to use, you're thinking, wow, he's really glossing over this. But it's because this is tech stuff, not stuff to blow your mind. So we're not going to go too deep into the cellular biology aspect of DNA. Yes, and if you are looking for your mind being blown, I'm sorry, you've come to the wrong place. Right. Uh, no, DNA has a, has a lot of instructions in it. Yes. Uh, as it turns out, it's a, a very tiny molecule with uh, with a very large capacity for, for carrying information. Yeah, if you were to actually stretch out a DNA molecule and lay it lengthwise, it would end up taking much more space than it typically does because it has this twisted three-dimensional uh, 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 structure. Hence and, my earlier dumb joke. Right. So this twisted structure actually allows this this very dense... Uh, storage medium mm-hmm. to exist in a relatively small volume of space. Yeah, because you've twisted it, and you know it's the whole thing about uh, conserving surface area and all that great stuff that all my biologist friends go on and on and on about, and then I end up wandering away. Um, the, but <laughs> DNA has, uh, among many other attributes there are pairs of bases mm-hmm. that that 
pair up in DNA, and this is, you know, the, the structure of those, the sequence of those determines what information is stored in that strand of DNA. Yeah. Okay, so those four bases, you have uh, adenine, cis, uh, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually we just call those A, C, G, and T. And uh, the way that those are sequenced, like I said, within a strand of DNA determines the type of information that that DNA holds. Uh, and uh, it's... It's it's that that forms the basis of the idea of using a DNA computer mm-hmm. because uh, in our – of course, in our, our classic computer model, we've got computers thinking, quote-unquote thinking, right. in binary, right? right. Mm-hmm. Zeros and ones. And so uh, with using DNA, uh, the approach right now is to associate certain of those bases with zeros and the others with ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the idea being that way you could sequence a DNA down the length of uh, a strand of DNA with these zeros and ones. You encode a strand of DNA that way, and then you would decode it. You would read back those those base pairings. And that would determine whether each pair was a zero or a one. And then uh, you would decode that into binary language, and thus you would get back to whatever information you originally stored onto the DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, this is I mean, – it makes it sound pretty simple, but this is high-tech science stuff right now. Now, granted, it's high-tech science stuff that we have made huge advances in over the last – Two decades, really. Yeah. Uh, so things that were seen as practically impossible two decades ago are things that we do almost, not quite routinely, but with a greater ease than we could have expected. Yeah, but over the uh, the course of, of uh, the last few decades, um, it's the kind of thing that when people see the double helix, it's familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's 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 high tech science, but it's in our public consciousness too, it's in our DNA. Yeah, um, there you, you know, go. The fact so, that that that's a, a uh, uh, slang term, you know, for something when you say it's it's basically you're saying it's deeply ingrained in your personality or whatever you're saying that about. Um, you know, it's it's certainly something that that we're all familiar with now, but only a few decades ago, you know, it was a. Uh, Completely foreign to us. Yeah. So yeah, let's we'll do a quick quick rundown of the history of our knowledge about DNA because clearly DNA has existed for millions of years, but we've only really been aware of it since about well, we knew something about it back in 1868. Yes, when Friedrich Meischer, uh, who was a Gesundheit. thank you, was a he was a biologist uh, from Switzerland. And he was looking at something pretty darn gross. He was looking at bandages that had pus on them. Yum. And he isolated DNA from the pus on the bandages. And he thought that perhaps the this stuff, this, these nucleic acids, which is DNA is a nucleic acid. Mm-hmm. He, he thought that perhaps this stuff might contain information in it that would determine why stuff is the way it is. So genetic information, he thought that that probably did contain that information, but there was no way for him to be able to confirm it. He could not 
point to anything and say, see, I'm right. So that had to wait for future scientists to uh, to really dive into it, not not the pus, that'd be gross, but to really dive into the information and study it and, and figure out uh, more details. So in 1943, uh, some scientists at Rockefeller University, including Oswald Avery, showed that DNA taken from a bacterium could make a non-infectious type of bacteria become infectious bacteria. So the thought was that there must be some information from this nucleic acid taken from one type of bacteria that could transfer properties to a different bacteria that otherwise would not have that infectious property. Hmm, but what does it mean? Yes, that's kind of what everyone was saying. They said, well, there's some sort of information-holding material here. We don't really understand the mechanism by which it stores information, nor how does it impart that information uh, or, or replicate it. Right. We didn't know that at the time. Uh, and then in 1952, Alfred Hershey and Martha Chase showed that to make new viruses, a bacteriophage virus injected DNA into the host cell, which was important because previously it was thought that perhaps it was through protein exchange. Mm -hmm. But instead of protein exchange, it was DNA exchange. So that showed, yes, there's something in this. This DNA is what is important. And then came along Watson and Crick. Yes. James D. Watson and Francis Crick. Yeah, they. Uh, it, it was clear that um, uh, that people were already onto something. Hershey and Chase had something there. Yeah, and it was only a year later when uh, Watson and Crick, uh, you know, made their announcement that yeah. they had discovered the structure of DNA. Right, and so this is when we started to really learn wh- how DNA, you know, forms and what shape it takes, and why that's important. And um, so once all of that was taken, uh, w- once we learned all that, we began to see that these base pairings I was talking about, we learned that they pair in very specific ways. You know, I, I mentioned there are the four different bases. There's uh, the, the ACGT. Well, half of those, A and G, are called purines. Mm-hmm. Uh, C and T are uh, pyrimidines. I'm glad you took that part. Yeah, me too. Uh, you know, way back when I was actually really good at biology, but man, that was a few decades ago. So anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, purines and pyrimidines, uh, look, I can't even do it now. Purines and pyrimidines. Still glad you took that part. Bond together, <laughs> right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, you don't get two purines bonding together and you don't get two pyrimidines bo- bonding together. And to be even more specific, uh, a and T will bond together, and C and G will bond together. Mm-hmm. All right, so that that means that you know you can't, you're not going to get a strand of DNA where A and C or A and G are paired together. It does not happen. Right. They they structurally that doesn't happen. So uh, that also dictates the the rationale behind using. Uh, these pairings as zeros and ones because mm-hmm. you you can either have 
you can either have the AT pairing or the CG pairing. Right. Right. So that that lets you say, okay, well, that's binary. It's either you 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 just designate that one means ze- one pairing means zero, the other pairing means one. Mm-hmm. Um, if it weren't that case, if we could have multiple pairing, multiple. Uh, uh, like like if A could pair with G instead of just A and T, then you would say, all right, well, now we've got a system that goes beyond binary, which in theory, if you completely change the way computers work, would mean that you could dramatically increase parallel processing. Yeah. Because you could designate things. It would almost be like uh, the qubits of a quantum computer where, in th- you know, the the... the Basic explanation is a qubit represents both a zero and a one and all values in between in superposition of one another. Right. And that if you have enough qubits, you can perform a massive parallel processing problem uh, all at the same time because those that that one group of qubits is behaving as if it's a, you know, a, a huge number of traditional bits. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to remember, too, that no matter how many bases DNA has, they all belong to us. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. I was, I was <laughs> like, oh, I was going to do an all your base are belong to us. Someone set us up the bomb. So, Well, right. it could be, actually. If you, if you were trying to – if those pairs become corrupted, they will not work. Yeah, and uh, and a cell can die. Actually, we're getting a lot of this information too from our, our excellent article on howstuffworks.com about how DNA works. It gets into a whole lot more detail. Than right. This. Yeah. If you want to learn more about and and it's very accessible. It's a very accessible article. Yeah, so if you're really curious is. about you know you've always heard about DNA and you've heard about DNA testing and you know about chromosomes and genes, but you're not really you know, beyond that, you're kind of confused. I highly recommend you read how DNA works at howstuffworks.com. We also have an article on how DNA computers work, mm-hmm. which is pretty interesting because it's talking about a an earlier era of DNA computers. But recent developments have really brought in, brought to light some interesting uh, new technologies and new use cases for DNA. And uh, we'll get into those in a second. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you say that because I'm sure that people – this is futuristic enough where people are saying – what are you talking about? New developments? We haven't heard of a DNA computer before, but uh, yeah, well, that's that's not really surprising. This is the kind of thing like like quantum computing where they've been working on it for some time, but it's not at a point where they can really, you know, put something on a shelf and go, "Look at this!" Yeah, yeah. This, the, where the, this where people all, will really take notice of it in general. This is all stuff that's taking place in universities and research yeah. facilities, and it's you know most of these machines that are being made now, or or these implementations of using DNA for information, uh, digital information, are really in the prototype stage. But we're getting the, – the technology that allows us to create these machines is becoming more and more sophisticated and less expensive, which, of course, is key That's huge. To, to any new t- – and Gordon Moore – yeah. Explained that back mm-hmm. in, in when he did his his paper about cramming more components onto an integrated circuit, mm-hmm. his point was not just that technology was advancing to a point where we could shrink stuff down and fit twice as many components onto uh, a square inch of silicon as we could a year ago. Right. It was also that the manufacturing process was becoming efficient enough and cheap enough where that made sense. Yeah. So same sort of thing here. Well. 
All right. So we've we've determined that DNA contains information. It, it because of its very structure, it can contain a lot of information in a small volume. Uh, and then it wasn't until about 1994. Now remember, it was the it was the 50s, the early 50s, when we started to really understand what DNA was and how how it uh, formed and and how and its structure and everything like that. Yes. In 94, a man named Leonard Edelman came up with this idea. He sort of uh, introduced the idea of using DNA to solve math problems. Mm-hmm. And it was essentially this idea of coding DNA as uh, if it were a strip of binary code. And, and so he took this idea and he sort of ran with it. He began to formulate an idea about how to, how to create an experiment that could show that this would work. And it's funny because it's talking about a DNA computer, but if you read about the experiment, it sounds more like someone in a chemistry lab mixing various chemical compositions together and then coming up with a, uh, a, a solution at the end of it. And that's, it turns out that this is a computational solution, not just a chemical solution. I, I see what you did there. Yeah. Little wordplay there. Yeah, it's a little, little incredible. So he, yeah, he, um, <laughs> you dissolved my objections. Right. Chris and I have more to say about DNA in just a moment, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Let me read, I'll I'll read the steps from our article on DNA computers because I want to explain how this early, early, early implementation of a DNA computer, how it, how it played out. And it's kind of amazing. Okay. All right. Here are the steps. Number one, strands of DNA represent the seven cities. Now, when it says seven cities in here, what he was doing was he was trying to solve something called the traveling salesman problem. Yeah, also the uh, the directed Hamilton path problem. Yeah. The idea being that you're supposed to find the shortest route between a group of cities. And it, and it could be uh, any number, really, of cities. But you have to only go through each city one time. Um, and it becomes more complex. This is this is why this is such a fascinating problem. Uh, as Jonathan pointed out to me right before, he reminded me that uh, this is something that quantum computing is fascinated with because this is such a uh, I don't know would you call it thorny a thorny problem. So it was that problem that they were were that he wanted to work on, and he chose I believe seven cities. He, yes. he set that as his benchmark. Right. That he wanted and, to do. And see, this is this is an interesting problem for uh, in computers because think about it. You, you've got Seven cities, you can only travel through each city once. You have to find the most efficient pathway to go. Well, the way a computer would do this, generally speaking, is to start going through every single possible um, uh, permutation of that trip, going from city to city, and determining which of those is the most efficient by the end of it by comparing them all, which can take – Ages and as as of course as you add more cities as you add complexity to the problem, it creates an exponentially more difficult problem for the computer to solve. You know, I don't think it's that unlike uh, trying to crack a password. Yeah, in the in the you know other references we've made to these again parallel processing. That's another reason why quantum computers are very scary for anyone who's in cryptography mm-hmm. who wants to create good encryption because they're talking about using parallel processing to attack. You know, do a brute force attack on a password, you can really reduce the amount of time it would take you to crack a password. Like a password that would 
probably take you thousands of years in classic computer time might only take an hour in using a quantum computer because it's using that parallel approach. So just remember, quantum computing is the cure for the common code. Oh, man, what is it with you today? <laughs> I don't know. Chris is in a mood, folks. <laughs> I, anyway, all right, so get, getting back to getting back to this <clears throat> thing, so yes. this, this set of steps. All right, so Edelman creates strands of DNA that represent the seven cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's these uh, AT and CG pairings. Mm-hmm. And then um, these various sequences represent each city and possible flight path. He then took the molecules, that these strands of DNA, and mixed them in a test tube. And some of the strands of DNA stuck together. And a chain of those strands represented a potential answer mm-hmm. to that question. Which of these, you know, which route is the most efficient? Within a few seconds, all of the possible combinations of DNA strands were created in the test tube. And then Edelman eliminated the wrong molecules through chemical reactions, which left behind only the flight paths that connect all seven cities. So here he was doing chemistry and looking at molecules. By, uh, and it was, and it was uh, biological chemistry because yes. he was using organic DNA. Yes. Um, and... And trying to come up with the answer that way, which is pretty interesting to me. I mean, that looks that sounds so different from the way we think of computing today, where you're using microprocessors and you know a user interface looking at a screen. This guy's using test tubes and molecules, um, and he was actually thinking at the time that this would be DNA computing is going to be the future because it packs so much information in such a small form factor and it's plentiful. Yes, because there's a lot of life out there. And organic life uh, relies on DNA heavily. There's some that rely on RNA, but mm-hmm. we're not going to go into that. But anyway, a, a great amount of organic life out there has lots and lots of DNA. So the we've got plenty of, of materials to work from. Uh, what's interesting is that since that time where his first experiments were showing the viability of a DNA computer – yeah. Our ability to sequence synthetic DNA has improved to the point where uh, organic DNA is not really what we care about anymore. We can synthesize DNA in the lab and just make it ourselves so we don't have to um, harvest it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Chris was saying in the pre-show, you know, it would be a totally different world if you realized that your computer was running out of memory, so you chucked another hamster into your machine so that you could finish whatever it was you were doing. That was a particularly gory idea. Well, we didn't, you know, but yeah, I, I left out the part about the grinding noises oh, and, you know, thanks. and fur flying out the back. You. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and I that, thought that was it, my contribution. I was grossed out. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, uh, University of Rochester. There were uh, some researchers that found ways to use DNA to create logic gates. Yes. Um, again, in the 1990s, 1997, it looks like. Um, so, uh, and that we've touched on on several occasions. But that, those logic gates are basically key to classic computing. Yeah, this is what. Uh this, this is what allows a computer to dictate how information moves through it so that it has any meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, the logic gates essentially uh, dictate whether the zero or one that goes into the gate comes out as zero or one on the other side. Or some, usually it's a pair. Mm-hmm. If it's a zero and a one, 
on the other side of the gate. Is that going to be a one or a zero? And it all depends on the type of gate it is. Um, and of course, you you can link a bunch of gates together to create all sorts of different outcomes depending upon what the input is. This is all very important from classical computing. So, mm-hmm. getting to that step of being able to build logic gates out of DNA, it was pivotal if you want to be able to eventually build a true DNA computer. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, this is you know you compare the components of a DNA computer to those of a an inorganic computer. Um, and we have, as uh, Jonathan pointed out, and, and Gordon Moore's uh, famous prediction that, that transistors would double in number per square inch of silicon back in the original prediction, um, you know, every, you know, over a certain period of time, which again has changed, you know, a year, year and a half, two years. The thing is, um, we're talking about a flat piece of silicon. And we've also talked about how hard drives, the classical hard drive, um, you know, has so much information on it. It's in a, it's in a flat plane. Uh, we've talked about, um, uh, electronic memory and how, you know, this information is, is getting stored. But we, we've basically been talking two dimensional. Yeah. And, and, uh, a long time ago, we talked about processors, uh, and how at some point, due to the limitations of, Physics, like it, at some point, electrons will begin to tunnel through layers of the material used to create transistors, basically making them ineffective. So, at some point, theoretically, the traditional transistor chip is going to be so full that you cannot fill it anymore without having serious electrical problems. So, they were talking about going into 3D processors. Right. Well, DNA kind of goes around that problem or is a natural, if you will, solution. Hey, for once, that wasn't a pun intended. Um, because DNA is volumetric. It isn't, yes. it can fit because of its, its natural characteristics. It doesn't have to be in a two dimensional, uh, flat shape. You don't have to stretch out the helix and stick it on a piece of whatever. silicon yeah. or whatever to make it work. Um, and that gives, uh, that gives computing so much more advantage to move to a DNA-based existence. Right. Yeah. the The challenge he is building. Eloquently. <laughs> the challenge is building the equipment that allows you to sequence and right. uh, decode that information. Because uh, in a, that's where we're, that's where the bottleneck is right now. Is yeah. that the? It's not simple. Yeah. We have to get there. Yeah, but once we get to a point where we're able to construct the DNA and lay it out in such a way where we're able to pack in all that information, and then we have the companion devices that can decode that and make it meaningful to a computer again, then you're talking about some huge leaps in storage capacity. Yeah. One gram of DNA can store up to 455 billion gigabytes of data, mm-hmm. which is about 100 billion DVDs worth of information. Yep, yep. As a matter of fact, uh, this is the article that sort of uh, turned me on to this idea. It was uh, something that my friends uh, Kim and Tim pointed out to me in The, uh, in the Guardian, uh, which really wasn't that long ago, August 2012. Yeah. They started talking about uh, how books had been encoded in DNA. Um, and uh, that that got me to uh, to thinking and to suggesting this to Jonathan as a, a potential topic because it's it's fascinating that DNA 
something so small can hold that much information. Yeah, and it's funny because the story goes, uh, it talks about how uh, Professor George Church led this project, and uh, he belongs to, um, he, well, he, he, teaches at, he teaches at Harvard, but not just Harvard. It's Harvard Medical School. This is this is one of those weird things uh, that this this overlaps science, computer science, and uh, and Biology, medicine. Biology, yeah, and medicine, yeah. So you've got. Wait, I'm sorry, physical science and medical science. Let's say that. Right. That, no, no, <laughs> that's that's fine. That's computer science and and medical science. It's it's uh, multidisciplinary, obviously, just like nanobiology or nanotechnology is a multidisciplinary approach. So is this DNA computer. Uh, or DNA storage idea. We've got a little bit more about DNA ahead of us. And before we get to that, let's take another quick break. So what uh, what Professor Church did was they, they decided to take a book that uh, was about 5.27 megabits of digital space once you converted it into digital information and to uh, encode that as DNA. Mm-hmm. And um, they didn't do it just once. No. They decided to duplicate it a few times. Seven, 70 billion times. 70 billion copies of this book, which uh, according to an article in Extreme Tech, prompted them to joke that it made it the best-selling book of all time. Yes. And that it was the 70 billion copies totaled about 44 petabytes of data. Um, so That is slightly larger than the uh, NAS I have attached at my network at home. Yeah, yeah, 44 petabytes. That's an incredible amount of information. It's also quite a bit smaller than yeah. my NAS. Yeah, so, so when you think about it, the 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 promise of DNA is that with a relatively small amount of DNA, you could store the sum total of all human knowledge in a very tiny compartment. Yeah, relatively speaking, a tiny compartment. And uh, if you're able to use that same sort of uh, uh, of capacity in a processing way as opposed to just storage. Storage is great. I mean, that's fantastic. The 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 the, per, the uh this project was really showing how using DNA is great for archival purposes. Yeah. If you want to store information for longevity's sake. And another point about that is that <laughs> this is I love this. Yeah, is that here's here's an issue that we have with storing information. The way we access information changes over time. Mm-hmm. And some of the uh, – there, there are multiple problems here. Sometimes the way we store information, uh, we store it on a medium that can decompose, which means that as time passes, the uh, the likelihood that that data is intact decreases. So let's say like a book. Right. Okay. Books are susceptible to lots of different environmental factors that can make them – Impossible to read. Yes. Right? So as time goes by, a book's ability to preserve that information decreases, particularly depending upon its environment. Yeah, and, and one of the things that's funny to me about this is, and I'll, I'll keep this short, but it's, it's funny to me that in a way, uh, 
the increase in technology um, has only uh, increased the rate of data rot, as some people call it. Because you think about something like the Rosetta Stone and how long ago that was chiseled. But it's still there because, hey, you know, it's stone. Yeah. If now, if you left it out in the elements, eventually the the writing on it will wear away due to the effects of erosion. But um, that's longer lived than, say, paper, which could be eaten by weevils or uh, could be affected by mold or mildew or or fire. even water or fire. Um, you know, there there are many things acid in the paper. Yeah. Um, but but that would be longer lived than, say. Um, a magnetic storage medium, which might may only live a few decades. Yeah, because uh, you've got with magnetic storage, eventually that magnetic property starts to kind of well. And I have data gets corrupted. Yeah, and I've had CDs and DVDs that I've burned, and a few years ago that are starting to show signs of deterioration. And I'm thinking. All this futuristic stuff, it's kind of funny. The stuff that's chiseled in stone is still there. Well, and on top of all that, besides the fact that it's you've kind of got ironic. these media, these media that will, that can degrade over time. Yeah. Um, magnetic definitely is more susceptible, I would say, than optical storage, but, it, but both can, can degrade. Yeah. And yeah. both are susceptible to damage. I mean, just about everything is. Sure. But, but, uh, the other problem is that we move away from those, older forms of media, and eventually we get to a point where nothing we have can read what we used to use. Or if you do have something that can read it, it's a legacy system. So, yeah. like so the you old, end up keeping old computers around simply to read those documents. Right, like, the, like anything that's on an old five and a quarter inch diskette from the early days of the personal computer you know, and I still have some. I, I would wager that most people do not have easy access to such a disk drive. Um, you know, especially if you're just kind of an average user and you've gone out and you're like, "Oh, I want a new laptop." You go and get. If you buy a new laptop today, you might not even have an optical drive, which means that there's you could come across records of information that you have no way of accessing because you do not have the tech capable of accessing it. Right. Well, DNA is a basic building block of organic life. Yes. And so the idea is that because it's something so basic, we will always have the ability, <clears throat> assuming that you know we don't have some sort of post-apocalyptic event, well, an apocalyptic event that then leads to post-apocalyptic events, um, then we should be able to have equipment that can read this same information. Hey, do you have the instructions on how to read DNA? Yeah, I saved it on that magnetic... (laughs) Now, here in Atlanta, we're used to post-apocalyptic events because we've got zombies. Yes. You may have seen if you've watched the documentary The Walking Dead. As seen on TV. So, um, yeah, the, the idea was that this will... DNA does not degrade over time. Well, it takes a much longer time than something like a paper book. Right. So... Since you're not worried about degrading, I mean, when I say it doesn't degrade over time, we're talking generations here. Hundreds of thousands of years, some people say. So, yes. I wouldn't know. I haven't been around that long. Eventually, it will degrade, but for the foreseeable future, it won't. Uh, It takes up far less space. We don't have to worry so much about uh, not being able to access the information anymore because, again, since it's a basic building block, we will presumably still be interested in DNA in the future. Uh, in fact, it become increasingly interested as we learn more about how to uh, to tweak DNA to do things like fight off 
illnesses and and other uh, scientific applications of that knowledge. So uh, that was kind of the the whole point was that it's great for archival in that reason. It's going to be it's 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 a it's a more permanent solution in multiple ways. And uh, that's really where the focus is on the recent articles that we've been reading, although there's still obviously quite a bit of development on the research end about building a true DNA computer that would uh, have an incredibly small form factor. I mean, you're talking yeah. about uh, DNA being the size of a couple of atoms, and this is some small stuff. I mean, we could theoretically have a DNA computer – capable of performing huge calculations and storing an enormous amount of data in a tiny, tiny form factor, it would be amazing if we could look into the future, maybe, I don't know, 20, 50 years, something like that, where perhaps we have reached the point where this technology is viable and and reproducible and economic, where we could see it in applications that actually the average consumer could access. Yeah. It wouldn't just be the realm of the scientific community or the research community. It would also be within our grasp. Because then, can you imagine, you could have a smartphone that could literally contain all the data that we have ever generated, ever, since the dawn of man on your phone. I was waiting for you to go, all the data, no, that was it. Just all of all it. the data. Um, well, all the data we have we access have. to. Um, there, there. It's astounding to think of something uh, so common that has been with us for so long being uh, an answer and a fairly easy answer to a lot of these problems. I mean, like I said, it's not easy to get there, but the idea is like really just DNA. As it turns out, you know, they've they've been using synthetic DNA to to run these experiments, and there are some drawbacks, yeah. one of which is it can't be rewritten. That is true. So once you write that data, it's that's another reason why people are talking about it for archival purposes. Once you write the data, that's it. Now, granted, you're talking about a construct that's so small that you could keep doing that indefinitely and not have to worry about taking up too much space. Yeah. But that's Which is not, the way they're thinking of it right now. Right. But, but you know, you can't. You can't always think that way because someday that will catch up to you. Now, well, granted, that might be when we're actually saying, hey, hey, we finally got a plan on how to get off this rock because the sun's going to swallow us up in another million years. Yep. <laughs> that that would never happen, by the way. Don't <laughs> don't write into me and explain to me why that would be ridiculous. I understand. I was just using that as a an example. Well, and, and the other thing is, um, you know, and, and – Yes, I realize that this is, you know, that you could destroy DNA. But um, thinking about that, it, the sensitive information can't be erased. Yeah. Then you would need to keep up with your, let's say you had a, a, a DNA drive, like you have a flash drive that sure. you carry back and forth with you. Uh, and it gets lost. And it had, I don't know, important sensitive documents related to national security or, um you know the the secret um, uh, copy of your unpublished book, and somebody else runs across it and makes billions of dollars off of it because they found it. Right. You you can't you can't uh, remotely wipe that information. I don't know how you would do that without and, and destroying without the entire... physically destroying the, the yeah. material. Yeah. So I it's that's sort of a uh, 
a minor drawback, really, but it's something it's, it's something very different from the media that we typically talk about. Yeah, so clearly in that case, you would be talking about, all right, well, now we've got this incredible archival ability. Now we have to figure out a way of securing it. Yeah. Oh, well, don't save that. Oh. <laughs> well, and this brings me to my brilliant science fiction idea. Oh, okay. Which I, I said in the pre-show, I said, if, if someone steals this, I will find you. See, that was my, that was my like, shout out to your my, my idea that you weren't idea. sharing. No, no, I'm sharing it okay. because if someone right. out there makes this, I want to cut. So here's the sci-fi idea, guys. You have a character who is just an ordinary guy or girl, you know, someone who is going through life and they've got the same sort of challenges and problems and joys and despairs as all the rest of us. But then suddenly they notice that they're being watched and people are closing in on them and they don't know why because they're just a normal person. And so they're trying to get away. And it turns out they find out that they themselves are a synthetic life form. They were built in a lab from the ground up. And in fact, their DNA contains this incredibly important information encoded into this person's very being is a secret message of such import that various forces are closing in on them, determined to get hold of this person, lop off a finger and figure out what the heck is going on. And so the character has to go through this incredible series of adventures in order to figure out as kind of a, a, a journey of self-discovery as well as protection. And there's a whole like hero arc and uh, the credits are great and Bruce Willis stars and I want to cut. I've got data yeah. under my skin. <laughs> are in it and through it. So guys, uh, yeah, that was a, I'm sure someone's going to write in and say, yeah, that was a great story when so-and-so wrote it. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. 15 years ago. I want to read it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I have no illusions that someone has not already come up with that idea. But if they haven't, and then you guys think that's a great idea and you want to go out and make it, remember, I want a credit and some money, or at least a sandwich. <laughs> come on, right? Writers got to eat. All right, that's so, fascinating uh, stuff, though. It's it's the kind of thing that I would never have thought to do. So yeah. I'm in. I'm, Blown away by that. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty fascinating subject, and like we said, there's there, we have some great articles on how stuff works. So you can go and check those out and and read up on DNA and DNA computers. And you know, the, like I said, there are the articles on uh, the Guardian as well as other places that are talking about this storage medium, and I it, it blows my mind. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that classic episode of Tech Stuff. Always a joy to revisit the old episodes we did in the past. It's also interesting that uh, I decided to throw this one in there because obviously a lot has happened since 2012. So I may have to do a full update episode about DNA computers in the near future. If you're interested in hearing such a thing, let me know. The email address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or jump on over to the website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. That's where you're going to find an archive to all of our previous episodes, as well as our presence on social media. And you'll also find a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show. And we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 